0: This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more
1: information, please visit gracepoint.net.
0: So who is Greg Boyd? Well, for those that are new to our church, let me tell you a little bit of background about our guest speakers. I guess it was about two years ago uh, that we said, you know, as an interdenominational church uh, without uh, a denominational, to, uh, a denomination rather, to identify us, a lot of time you're you're left in a bit of an identity crisis, and so uh, we decided we're not going to join the nomination probably, so why don't we bring in some of the speakers, some of the thinkers that have impacted us from a lay level, they've impacted you, uh, like minds gather together, and so a lot of your favorite authors were our favorite authors, but especially the leadership, and, and really especially me. I, I just looked through the retinue of people who've impacted my life, and I said I would love to have these people. Now, can we get them or not? I don't know because we're a little church down here in Franklin and these people are kind of legendary figures to me. And uh, I I didn't know, but we started inviting and we had people like AJ Levine, the great uh, Jesus scholar. Um, And then we had Philip Yancey, who's impacted my life for years and years and years and a lot of Christians. And then we had Phyllis Tickle come in. You remember Phyllis? (laughs) Hard to forget Phyllis, isn't it? Um, we had Phyllis come in, it was great, and then we had Brian McLaren, and then we had two people who deeply impacted my life, and still impact my life back in November, Tony and Peggy Campolo, and on that short list of people that I wanted to bring in, who have deeply impacted the way I see God, the way I see the kingdom, the way I see life, the way I see so many things, is this guy named Greg Boyd. Greg and I have a lot of mutual friends, We even have some history, uh, the denomination that I grew up in, he had some association with that denomination when he first gave his heart to Christ. And so we know a lot of the same people come from the same world, but his books were the way that I attached to him. The first book I read of Greg Boyd's was a book in 94 that probably a good number of you have read called Letters to a Skeptic. And it was an interchange, a very personal, private interchange. musings between Greg and his father Edward. His father was an atheist and Greg's a smart guy who had gone off to Yale Divinity School and left there and then got a PhD at Princeton and brought all of that esoteric heady theology and in his loving relationship with his father just coerced that down, distilled that down to this series, this very heartening series of very personal letters between he and his dad and his dad later became a, a Christian. I don't know if it was out of that, but certainly that was a part of it. But that was a really, and all these years later, I still recommend that book to people who have loved ones who uh, are not people of faith. It's a great book, Letters to a Skeptic. And then, the, uh, then I ran into some books, uh, two big books, big, thick, kind of heady books. They're thick and they're heady, but they're also very accessible. That's one of the things I like about him. I mean, the guy he pastors a church up in the Twin Cities outside of St. Paul called Woodland Hills that he and some of his friends started back in 93. Uh, he's an adjunct professor. He's been a professor through the years. But he, he also, in 2010, I'm just kind of rattling here, but in 2010, he was voted one of the 20 most influential living theologians. And that's up there with people like John Dominic Crossan and N.T. Wright and uh, Al Plantinga and uh, Pope Leo, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger. So he's up there in that. But he makes things very accessible, I think. He's kind of a layman's theologian, which I think are the smarter theologians, the ones who can explain it to, to the rest of us. But he had two big books called God at War and Satan and the Problem of Evil. Some of you have read those, and so those drew me in and kind of gave me a sense of some things that I had intuited. He gave me language for. And then the next book I think I found was God of the Possible, that really dives into the whole thing that he's going to talk about this morning. And it really, again, gave voice to things that I had intuited um, and gave language for it. And over time, really distilled into what I believe about God and and this whole debate of free will versus determinism and all of that. So uh, he wrote a few years ago on the myth of a Christian nation. He ended up on the front page of the New New York Times and he really said some pretty strong things to us as a group of people. Um, in the ways that we wrap the flag around the cross and maybe tangle those kingdoms inordinately. Um, So he's a great guy, great thinker. I'm always nervous. I told the first service, I'm always nervous when I meet my heroes because I'm afraid they're going to be a jerk and I won't like them, and it's so disappointing. But I picked him up at the airport and he wasn't a jerk, so I'm relieved. (laughs) He's just the nicest nicest guy, and I think we're going to be friends. I really do. And so... Anyway, we're gonna be back here at 5.30 tonight. I don't wanna take any more of his time, but 5.30 tonight, we're gonna get to spend some time with this really accessible, great theologian. So from 5.30 to 7, bring your questions. But for now, oh, I wanna say one more thing about you. I'm sorry, one more thing. The thing I like about you is that you're an independent thinker. He positions himself, you have never gotten caught in the whole liberal, conservative thing. You position yourself, and you are appreciative, which I've always tried to do, of all of these. Um, You know, from your position on annihilationism with John Stott, and you even put your name on the back of Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, even when you didn't see it exactly the same. You believe in the historical reliability of the gospels, which I love. You're friends with the Jesus Seminar guys. You appreciate the scholarship and you know they're saying good things, but you still also appreciate the fervor and the ardency with which evangelicals like us have loved the text. And I I think that position between is, is so incredibly important. And I think it's really the way forward. I think we're getting weary with red and blue and conservative and liberal and we're trying to find our way to what is the essence of Christianity on all sides of this. That's one of the things I like about you. Welcome Greg Boyd.
1: So, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? All right. It's really great to be here. I appreciate um, the invitation to be here. and um, I want to say to, to John, you're not a jerk either. <laughs> <laughs> Did I really call you Brian? Uh, sorry about that. Uh, names are not my strong suit. Uh, but it's it's really an honor to be here. Uh, you're a beautiful congregation. I just want to let you know that. Uh, love... I love the grace and the grace point. I love the point of grace. I think you guys are, are, uh, are hitting it. And, uh, and just that way that uh, Stan said, not being falling into this category or that category, but just to seek your own way. I, I'm blessed with one thing, and that's that I've always been paranoid of, of uh, groupthink, of homogeneity. Whenever, if everyone's agreeing, it's like, okay, now I'm worried. And so uh, that, that's what allows me to always be having the alternative view. But uh, it's, I'm blessed honored to find that I've poured into uh, this place a little bit. Um, now, my wife uh, always says, before you just start diving into your information, uh, which I tend to do, like, okay, turn to this passage, uh, she says, tell a little bit about yourself, personalize it, because people don't want to be just listening to a talking face, they want to know a person. And so uh, I'm thinking of, uh, what, what, what would you like to know about me in one minute so I can get to my information? Um, <laughs> One thing is that I don't like to preach in shoes. You may have noticed, I don't like shoes. I've always, I, the shoes are confining, they're constricting, they're part of the fall, they're ungodly. They make your feet sweaty. My feet get all hot and sweaty and mushy, I can feel my toes squishing, I don't like that. So I like to ventilate them. Now I don't usually like to ventilate them as much as I'm doing this morning because it was only after I got up here that I realized I have a hole in my sock. So <laughs> I'm getting a lot of ventilation on the right, on the right side. Uh, I've been married to uh, uh, Shelly for 35 years. She's been a lucky lady, I'm sure. And um, yes, it's, it's been a joy. We have three children, uh, grown children. We've got five grand ki- grandchildren, two of them adopted. Uh, we uh, share life with three other couples, have for about 20 years now. And 11 years ago, we, and we're kind of like an extended family. Uh, we decided to move into, the, we're all living in different suburbs, and uh, we decided to move into the city uh, on the same block together. The goal of ultimately moving into a house together, which we almost did two years ago, uh, except in the walkthrough, we find out there's $150,000 worth of repairs that were needed, so we didn't. But um, that's kind of the ultimate goal. But we really are sharing life and we, we help each other, you know, with, raise our kids and fix our marriages and just do all the stuff you do in life. I think that's a, a good way to, to live in a community like that. I um, have uh, one dog that my wife is way too attached to, but he is very cute. His name's Max. Uh, and I play drums. I'm a drummer in a rock band. I'm actually an old hack in an old hack band. But uh, the, our small group, we all at some point realized we used to play instruments when we were kids. Uh, we're rock stars, legends in our legends in our own mind. And so we we started doing some jamming downstairs uh, once in a while, and we started to like that, you know, Born to be Wild and all those 60s songs. Uh, And then in time we started learning new songs and got a little more and more contemporary and at one point uh, one of the couples in our group, uh, their son was getting married and he wanted us to play at the reception so we did and someone who owned a bar heard us and said well I'd like to have you play at the bar so we thought that'd be cool and we can raise money for this uh, children's work that we do in Haiti. And so for the last 10 years, we've been doing these gigs in clubs and raising money for these kids in Haiti. And uh, it's, it's a very healthy way to have a midlife crisis. I feel like that. It's, <laughs> it, it's, it's a good way to do it. My most recent venture, I'll just say, is I, for the last 10 years, I've been trying to get back to where I was like when I was 18 and 1920, when I, I thought I was going to be a drummer for, you know, for a living. And, and I'm always trying to recover those skills. But in the last six months, I decided something. Uh, I have, I I, I got to really admire the speed of speed metal drumming. I don't know if any of you are into speed metal, any speed metal freaks? Okay, there you go. Uh, Dragon Force. Okay, so I love that drumming. It's like, the bass drum is like, and and they're they're so fast. And they can do the single stick roll, like, with one hand. And I admired that. At some point, I just thought, why don't I learn that? Yeah, well, I'm 57, you're not supposed to be able to learn new things. Well, who said that? So I, I set out to learn how to do speed metal drumming. And um, it was slow going for the first three months, very slow. But in the last three months, I'm seeing a little bit of an improvement, and my feet are getting faster, and it's just fun. Old dogs can learn new tricks, so keep on trying new tricks. All right, let's get into it. Um, I want to talk today about, it's one of my favorite topics, maybe my most favorite topic, It is, I think, the most important topic, because I want to talk about our picture of God, our mental picture of God, which is different than our theology. You can have all the right theology, but the way you actually picture God in your head can be very different than that. What is your mental picture of God? Um, Does it inspire love, or does it inspire fear? What motivates you in your life? And I'll warn you, I'm going to be packing a lot into the next 45 or 50 minutes or so, uh, Stan's giving me a, a, a release to go ahead. Don't do one of these little 30-minute deals. We want the full thing. So I have, you know, I'll quit before three this afternoon, but, you know, we'll, we'll see how this goes. So I, I, it's going to be pack, packing a lot in here. You're going to learn a little Greek along the way. Um, Stan tells me that you're an exceptionally intelligent congregation, and I can see that. So uh, that's good because we're going to be shooting high. So take notes if that helps. Uh, you also should probably know that when I get pumped up and excited about something, I tend to talk fast. Um, you should just. Here's a little piece of information. I had speech therapy from first grade to my senior year in high school to learn how to talk this slow. <laughs> so I think in paragraphs instead of sentences and words. And and for years it all tried to come out at the same time. It was like, so I, I had to learn how to piecemeal it. So when you're having trouble keeping up, just praise God that I'm not talking faster because I'm trying to slow down. Uh, so put on your speed hearing. That's probably why I like speed metal, too. I have ADHD, and I think speed metal was made for people with ADHD. It's like sensory overload. Ah. (laughs) So uh, just put on your speed hearing, and if you have hearing aids, turn them up, and uh, here we go. I think that the most important piece of data in your brain is your mental picture of God. The most important fact between your ears is your mental picture of God. How do you envision God? Among other things, it, it's important because we always become the image of God that we envision. Uh, how you envision God will, will, will shape the, the course of your life, uh, for better or for worse. There's actually neurological uh, proof of this now. I don't know if any of you have read this book, but it's a great book. It's called The God-Shaped Brain by this neuropsychologist named Jennings. And he's shown that, that there's a, a lot of research out there on that. He just sort of collects it all together. But he's shown that people who have a fear-based picture of God, a threatening, ominous picture of God, and who are therefore motivated by fear, what happens is it affects the structure of your brain. Your prefrontal lobe cortex, which does all of the abstract reasoning and processing of information, that begins to shrink. And your amygdala, which is your fight-or-flight reflex, it's always operate, Whenever you're afraid, that's what gets activated. That gets, like, overgrown and it does other structural things to your brain. But basically, having an ugly picture of God damages your brain. Neurologically, it damages your brain. And people who, who have this image of God, uh, they tend to, over time, be less capable of having loving, calm agree, uh, discussions with people who disagree with them. Uh, they tend to be shorter on the fuse in terms of anger. They tend to want to control more. And see... This is proof that you become the kind of God that you worship. If you've got a threatening picture of God, you become a more threatening person. If you have a controlling picture of God, you become more controlling. Your picture of God shapes the course that your life takes. The opposite is also true, and Jennings also deals with this. When you have a beautiful picture of God that instead of motivating you by, by a move away from strategy, by a threat, it rather pulls you forward with a move towards strategy, um, that is very healthy for the brain folks who have that tend to be able to communicate more clearly and calmly with people who disagree with them. They're less quick to to go to anger. They're, they're, They're easier at relinquishing control. It's healthy to believe in a healthy, whole, loving picture of God. And this even has a strong biblical basis to it. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about uh, how folks who, who aren't surrendered to Christ, there's a veil that remains over their minds. Throughout chapter 3, he's talking about a veil over their minds. And that veil keeps them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Jesus is just a human being for them. And it keeps them from seeing Jesus in Scripture. But when we turn to the Lord, Paul says, the veil is removed. So now we can see in our mind, or what we would call our imagination, we can see something we couldn't see before. And then Paul says this in verse 18. And all of us with unveiled faces seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror. That's our imagination. It's still mediated, but through our imagination. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Look at that passage. Paul is saying that what transforms us, it's not our willpower, we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, it's not our commitments, our New Year's Eve resolutions, you know, it's all the different disciplines we're going to get involved in, although those can have a role in our life for sure. Paul says that the main thing that transforms us is what we look at, and what we look at in our mind, what we see. You, you become what you see. And Paul says here we have unveiled faces now, We talking spiritually. We have a The Holy Spirit opens our mind to be able to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he says, in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we behold that glory, we take on that glory. We're transformed into it. As you sit, if you can imagine Jesus in his love, it it, it loving you, you. You see it, you sense him hugging you, you see it in his eyes, you hear it in his words. As you do that, you become more loving. And as I behold his joy over me, I become more joyful. And as I behold his peace over me, I become more peaceful. In fact, everything that is his by nature, I begin to acquire by grace because I gaze at him. I I wrote a book on this called Seeing is Believing. And I I think it's the most fundamental discipline in the Christian life. The most fundamental discipline in the Christian life is to do nothing. (laughs) To stop doing and just sit and gaze. Enjoy God enjoying you. Enjoy God enjoying you. Um... And that's how we're transformed into his image. It's, it's, it's the key to transformation. If you're trying to crank it out on your own willpower, you're not going to get far. But this is why. And The two things I want to talk about here this morning is this. First, why it's so important to have a Jesus-centered picture of God. And then I'm going to talk about the passage that's usually used against that claim, which is Romans 9. All right? So here's the... It's crucial that we have our view of God centered on Jesus. Hebrews 1 is an important passage in this respect. Uh, the author says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times, polymeros, and in various ways, polytropos. But in these last days, which is simply the last chapter which we're still in, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the youth, The universe. Listen to this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation, The word there's character, of his being, where there's hypostasis. Now there's a contrast going on here. The contrast is between the past and the present, between what was revealed before the sun and the revelation of the sun. In the past, God spoke polymeros and polytropos. Polymeros has the connotation of, of like in portions, snippets. And polytropos just means in various ways, a lot of different means. And it was all mediated through prophets. But in these last days, in contrast to the past, he's come in the sun. And in this context, it has a connotation of coming in person. This is now God in person. It's not mediated. He himself is here. Um, the Holman translation of the Bible uh, translates it, in the past they had glimpses of truth, but now we have the, his own son. And as opposed to glimpses, we get the full thing. And he says the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Now look at that concept. Radiance of glory. What's the difference between radiance and glory? Very little. He's the shininess of God's shininess. When God shines, it looks like Jesus. he's the brightness of, of brightness. He's the light of the sun. In other words, the author is saying that in contrast to what we had in the past, Jesus is when God shines, it looks like Jesus. When God displays His glory, it looks like Jesus. This is—he's the embodiment of all that is the glory of God, the very shininess of God's shininess. And then He says He's the exact character representation. The word character has the connotation of imprint, okay, an identical imprint. So the Son is the exact imprint of God. When God becomes incarnate, finite, visible, it looks like Jesus Christ. And then He adds, and this is really significant. Of his very being, hypostasis. The word hypostasis is the word for essence or substance. And so the author is saying that in Jesus we have the exact representation of what God is like down to his very essence, down to his innermost heart. God is Jesus like all the way down. So in the past. The revelation was mediated through prophets and it came in portions and glimpses of truth, but now we have it through his own son. And in the past, we had little glimpses of his glory here and there, but we also had a lot of other stuff, but now we have the very radiance of God's glory. In the past, they had approximations of God's character, but now we had the exact representation of his character. And in the past, they saw aspects and perspectives of God, but now we know what God is like down to his very, very essence. God looks like Jesus, lock it in. Our picture of God has gotta be absolutely focused on Jesus. That's why Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. And Philip was saying, you know, Jesus, you've been talking on and on and on about the Father. Why don't you just show us the Father, and then we'll be satisfied. And Jesus goes, Philip, have I been so long with you, and yet you don't know me? If you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? If you see me, you see, see this is, this is kind of stuff that got Jesus crucified. Um, if folks who say oh Jesus was a good prophet a great moral teacher they just haven't read the gospels good moral teachers don't go around saying "Hey, if you see, what would you think of me if I said hey you guys um, rather than talk about God I just want you to look at him okay go ahead I don't think I'd be invited back for a while uh, this is loony stuff in a monotheistic Jewish environment but that, this is what Jesus does and what he's saying is you want to know what God is like don't go looking to my left or my right or before me or in back of me or in this verse or that verse. Keep your eyes fixed on me, which is why the New Testament says a number of times, fix your eyes on Jesus. Envision God as you do Jesus Christ. He is the spitting image of God. And that's just a part of God or an aspect of God or the nice side of God as opposed to the bad side of God, the love side of God as opposed to the justice side of God. No, it's all found in Jesus. So Paul says this in Colossians 2. He says, all... In Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Now, Paul here is stretching language to say what he wants to say. He, he uses a, a, a triple superlative. All, pas is the word, all, not just some, all of the fullness. So all, all, it's not just all of one aspect of God or all of the side of God, but all of the fullness of Theotes, he says. Theotis is the word for divinity. It means what makes God, God. And so Paul is here saying, triple emphatically, all of the fullness of what makes God, God, is found in, in bodily form in Jesus. Every aspect of every dimension of God, of that what makes God, God, is found in Jesus. And so in Jesus, we've got all we need to know. That's why Paul could say in, in uh, um uh, to the Corinthians, it goes, I've resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's great. i look at the world through that lens. You don't know anything about anybody except Jesus Christ crucified. That's all you need to know. Jesus died for them, therefore they have unsurpassable worth. You don't need to know another thing. Uh, it, it's all found in Jesus, and especially in Jesus on the cross. The cross is like the quintessential expression of everything Jesus reveals about God. Uh, and so we find this. In 1 John 4, John says that God is love. You've heard that verse before. God is love. But what is love? I mean, love is an ambiguous word, isn't it? I mean, some people say you can have love in an elevator, I've heard. Or, uh, uh, you know, Augustine, <laughs> you know, hello, I love you. Won't you? Yeah, I love, listen to the radio. Love can mean a whole lot of weird things. Um, Augustine thought you could love somebody and torture them to death, uh, you know, because they're heretics. The heretics never agreed with that, however, uh, so there's that. But what what is love? Now, fortunately, the Bible doesn't leave it to our own subjective feelings or whims or songs. It gives us a very concrete definition by pointing us to a concrete event. So John says, God is love. Now, here's the kind of love God is. Jesus Christ, here's how you know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us so also we should lay down our life for one another. That is love. It's self-sacrificial. God eternally is that kind of love. The kind of love that leads him to give his life uh, for a race of people who could deserve it less, and this is the fullest revelation that there ever could be. And I want us to see this. It's about the cross, because even with Jesus, you, you could, depending on what you want to emphasize, people can still get jaded pictures of God. The cross is the thematic center of everything Jesus was about, and here's why. On the, on the cross, God Almighty, the all-holy God, became our sin. 2 Corinthians five twenty-one: the all-holy God became. Our sin. And the perfectly united triune God, perfectly united in love, he became our God-forsaken curse. Galatians 3.13. That's why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He steps into our place, experiences the sin, and then experiences the God-forsakenness of that sin. So God went to the extreme of experiences experiencing his opposite, his antithesis. In fact, God couldn't have gone one inch further than he went on our behalf. What else could he do? He went to the infinite extreme of, of experiencing his own antithesis. Which is why the pain of the cross must have been unimaginable. You experience pain to the degree that you experience anything that's antithetical to your nature. You get a cut in your arm where there's not supposed to be an opening. It hurts. Well, here God is experiencing his antithesis on the cross. In all eternity, he couldn't go one centimeter further than he went. And see, here's the thing. The degree to which he stooped to save us is the degree to which he loves us. It's the degree to which he is love. And so the infinite extremity that he went, the unsurpassable extreme to which he went on our behalf when we could not have deserved it love, when we were still enemies, it reveals the infinite intensity and perfection of the love that he eternally is. You following that? This is why it's the the quintessential revelation of God. If you understand the logic of the cross, it could not be otherwise. The infinite extremity to which he was willing to go reveals the infinite perfection of the love he eternally is. And that's why the cross reveals him. It reveals how God eternally is. So what it means, folks, is this. That's gotta be our picture of God. That's gotta be your picture of God. A God who is infinitely beautiful, uh, infinitely perfect in that love, a God who's more loving than you could possibly imagine. It means that right now you are sitting in the environment, in the, in the atmosphere. You're enveloped by the perfect love of God. It means that right now, this moment, God is looking at you with eyes of love that are a trillion times more loving than what a new, new, new mother has looking on her newborn child. It means that right now you, are, you could not be, and you never will be, more loved nor less loved than you are this second. And that doesn't Depend on how good you've been this week, or how bad you've been this week, or how righteous you are, or how many times you read the Bible, or who you witness to, or or if you fall into drugs this week. Because it's not based on you; it's based on God. This is who God is. God is this infinite love, and He's facing you. He's pouring Himself out to you. That's what the cross is all about. And so, it's this is the kind of love that doesn't go go. doesn't go up when you're a good boy, and go down when you're a bad boy. It just is. And see, it's, it's as we let that love burn into us as we are, exactly as we are, before we make any promises to change and be better, as we get that love up front for free, well, that's, that's what eventually begins to change us and transform us. As we gaze upon that love and we start to drink in it and we leave it and, and internalize it, well, that, that's what changes us from the inside out. It uh, completely revolutionizes us. Now, if there's any Pharisees here this morning, God bless you. We're glad that you're visiting. But you might be thinking, oh, here we go again, that liberal, lovey-dovey, fluffy God. Yes, yes, love, 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 love. But see, people are just gonna then sin that grace may abound. You're just giving people a license to sin. They're gonna go on. You know, if you, if you want people to be motivated to get out of sin, well, you need to preach the wrath of God, the power of God to bring justice on reprobate sinners. And that will motivate them to move in a different direction. Let's see, God bless the Pharisees. I don't judge them because you have an ugly picture of God that's damages your brain. I get it. Uh, it, it it's, it's a neurological fact. And see, if, if, folks, if folks live in that, the only motivation they know is fear. If the only motivation you know is fear and you hear a message like this, then you will fear that the lack of fear is gonna send people to hell. And the sad thing is that, as Jesus said, the blind leaders of the blind, the, those who have the da- brain damage of having an ugly God that motivates by fear is that they inflict it on other people who then get brain damaged. And you create whole cultures of people who are based on this. Here's the thing. Here's how Paul defines power. You want to talk about power? Paul says that to the world, the natural mind, uh, the cross is, is, is weak and foolish, 1 Corinthians 1.18, but to us, it is the power of God. To those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Think about this. The cross is the power of God. Now, here's the thing. Human beings throughout history, we've always made God in our own image. We project unto God what we would be if we were God. If I was running the universe, here's what I would do. And the kind of power we've always longed for is the power to win, the power to control the t- power to impose our superior and intellectually and moral superior ideas on others. That's what politics is all about. Who gets to win and impose their superior ideas on the stupid people who didn't get it? Um, that's the kind of power we've always craved, power to squash our enemies, power to get our way. And so we impose that on God. And you study the history of religions, and that's what you get. From Allah to Zeus to Jupiter to Thor, there's all these Arnold Schwarzenegger deities back when Arnold Schwarzenegger was buff. You know, these mighty, powerful, muscle-bound deities who get to have their way. They're just human beings who've got bigger biceps, cosmic biceps. And so they get to crush their enemies and control the world and do whatever they want to do. And that's what what human beings do. Paul here gives us the opposite, the exact opposite of this. This is one of the reasons I know why it's true. This has got to be inspired by God. I've studied world religions. I I know what people do when they think about God on their own. (laughs) This isn't it. Human beings never come up with stuff like this. This is too beautiful for any human being just to create. This is turning everything on its head. Because Paul is saying that when God flexes his omnipotent bicep, it looks like him getting crucified on a cross by enemies for the sake of the enemies, praying for their forgiveness with his last breath. When God flexes his omnipotent bicep, the omnipotent God, it looks like this. To the natural mind, that looks weak. To the natural mind, that looks foolish. To Paul, he says, that is the power of God. That's how God runs things. That's the kind of God he is. That's what Revelation is all about. It's, it's the slain lamb that wins and the slain lamb that runs things. And he does it in a slain lamb kind of way. It's not the Arnold Schwarzenegger God. No, it's, it's, it's the crucified God. He's a God who rules out of his love, uh, drawing people, influencing people, not this coercive God who imposes his will on others and insists on getting his way. And see, that power, there is no greater power in the world than that. The power of self-sacrificial love. When you believe that, when you start to internalize that, it can transform you in ways that threats and laws and the fear of hell never could. In fact, threats and laws and rules and social pressure and, and, and hell, it can adjust your behavior now and then. You might quit smoking because you don't want to go to hell. I had a friend who did that. But I guarantee you, 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 you all you do is you exchange one form of crap for another. Because <laughs> it doesn't change you. You're just as screwed up and dysfunctional, you just got a different you know, set of issues. Instead of, instead of debaucherous crap, now you got religious crap, and it's the same kind of crap. The only way you're, really, we, it's a crap shoe, we just trade in crap games. It, it, what version of crap do you want? Yeah, laws and threats and stuff can, can change that up, but the only way to get out of crap is to know that you're loved in the midst of the crap, with an infinite, perfect love that isn't affected by the crap. I'm poetic today. Uh, if you can ingest, believe, hang on to that love in the midst of that crap that begins. that's the thing that begins to motivate you to want to get out of your crap otherwise you're just doing it for negative reasons which is just another form of crap only when you get the love up front for free unconditional, no ifs, ands, and buts there it is, given to you on the cross only then, it's like this Uh, here's my own experience on this Uh, I uh, came to Christ in the same kind of very legalistic church that uh, Stan was uh, raised in and a um, uh, girlfriend brought me to this church just because I was always talking about, like, is there life after death and whatever? And so and she wanted to win some kind of a contest in her Sunday school class. So she brought me <laughs> to this thing. And, um, yeah, God, God works by any means possible. And the, the, I ended up liking it, and I ended up coming to Christ, and I had a great encounter with Christ. I mean, it was God, God will meet you wherever you are, okay? So he works through this kind of dysfunctional church. Now, this church, I, I would put it against any form of legalism out there. I mean, I, you maybe came from some legalistic churches. I bet this one outdoes yours. We were more saved than anybody. <laughs> we were super saved. Um, everyone was backslidden except for us. And we had all these rules about what you could do and couldn't do and all that kind of stuff. Now, I came from a broken home from the age of 13. Uh, my, stepmother and dad divorced and I stayed with my dad and he traveled for two weeks at a time a traveling salesman so I basically raised myself from 13 on, which is not a good prescription for uh, healthy living so I would define my years from 13 to 17 as drugs sex and rock and roll I was into the party scene but and I would cover it up by being in sports so I was a jock on the surface but I was behind the scenes doing all this drugs sex and rock and roll Um, but I was empty really empty on the inside I was always hungry for more it really struck me as empty, and I came to Christ, and it was so fulfilling. I f- had a purpose. I had a meaning. I-, I-, I loved it. I loved it, despite all the rules. Maybe I even needed them to make a clean break. I don't know. And I got rid of most of my stuff. I, I traded out most of my crap. I did. Quitting um, the band wasn't, wasn't that hard. Uh, no, I felt so full. That wasn't too bad. Um, getting all the drugs, that wasn't too hard. Even engaging in actual sex, that, that, that was, I wouldn't say it was easy, but it, you know, it was possible. Here's the one thing that didn't change. From the age of 13 on, once my stepmother left, my dad didn't try to hide any of his porn. Uh, He he thought it was totally natural for young boys to be viewing this stuff. He had a ton of it, and it was hardcore. And so I had a steady diet of pornography from 13 to 17. And I'm living in the house with him while I am now a new Christian. And he's gone most of the time. And I'm a walking hormone, okay? I'm 17. (laughs) Uh, Well, this is not a good situation. And So I would I would you know go a day or two without viewing it, but invariably I'd fall back into it. And see, some churches teach eternal security. I hear that's really big down here. Eternal security. Well, this church preached eternal insecurity. Because you're only as saved as your last sinless moment. Every sin breaks fellowship with God, and now you gotta get resaved. So I would get saved and unsaved daily. Uh, Typically the Sunday night service was where you'd come forward All the sinners come forward when we repent and get resaved Or saved for the first time, whatever It's our evangelistic service And so I'd go forward and I'd promise I'll never look at it again I promise, blah, 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 make vows And maybe I'd make it to Monday afternoon (laughs) Uh, Monday night, a good week would be Tuesday One time I made it to Thursday evening, okay Uh, Three days of unbroken salvation, that's pretty good Uh, But I'd, I'd fall back into it invariably and then I started getting into this weird shtick, which I've been told is not as uncommon as I thought, that since I'm unsaved already, well, I might as well just enjoy myself. <laughs> uh, you know. So I, 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 I dropped the ball on Wednesday, so it's not till Sunday that I'm gonna get resaved. So I might as well just take a little vacation from God and just go out and sow my seeds and whatever. And That was a metaphor. And uh, um, uh, my, my wild seeds. <laughs> Sorry, Billy. Do you have editing capacities on this thing? Um, and, and, and then come back to God on, on Sunday. See, when, you, when you're serving a legalistic God, you act like a, a lawyer. And so you're finding loopholes. And that makes sense in a bizarre, twisted kind of way, if you think about it. Although you really hope that you don't get killed between your, on your vacation. <laughs> well, it got to the point where I, I, I gave up on this thing. I, I didn't want to do it anymore. It was, it, was, uh, it was just getting old. A year and a half, two years into this, I, I was... I so said, who, who am I kidding? Who am I kidding? I can't, I can't do this thing. I believe what they're saying is true. I just can't live the life. Uh, I felt like a yo-yo on God's finger. You know, uh, you're damned. You're saved. Damn saved. Damn saved. Damned, saved. Damned, saved. Damned, saved. it was like, <laughs> and, and so I just, I, I'm going to quit. So one Sunday night service, I didn't go forward. I, I walked out to church. I, and I had a friend there that I had actually brought into this church. And uh, he had some of the same problems, not as serious as mine, but he he also struggled with this. And we talked for a long while, and I just was just saying to him, as everyone else left the parking lot, we stayed out in this parking lot for a long time. Mm-hmm. I was just saying, Tom, I, 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 I'm not ever going back. I'm done. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't live the life. That's how they used to put it. Can't live the life. <laughs> um, I, I can't. I, 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 follow, I keep falling. I, I, I'm never going to break out of this. I can't help myself. I'm, I'm, I'm addicted. And apparently God's not going to help me. So uh, I quit. And I, here, I don't know if you've ever thought this thought, but it's the darkest thought you can possibly think. That you're going to hell, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. That is a dark, dark place, and that's where I was. I am damned. But at least I'm going to have fun in the meantime. This, here I'm just miserable, I'm going to be damned anyway, so I might as well just take a permanent vacation and, um, and, and be done with it. And so I'm in this really low place. And then I, became, I, I, I uncorked. I, I popped. And I started reeling at God. I mean, some blasphemous stuff. Um, and looking back at it, I can see that it, I, it, wasn't really, it wasn't really about the porn stuff at all. I was mad at all, all authority. I, ever since I was a kid, you know, they sent me to a Catholic school having ADHD, and although they didn't have those categories back then. You were just a demon child. And so, and this is, this is like pre-Vatican, so these nuns would beat the crap out of you, man. And it, and it got to the point where the one thing I was good at, you know, everyone's got to have a stick, some way of getting life, and I, I couldn't do it by being good, so I got it from being bad. I mean, I, I was the class clown who always was too crazy to have any boundaries and was always getting in trouble, and, and I actually felt good about that. Pierce noticed that. You know, I couldn't talk for my life because I stuttered so much. Uh, but uh, did I tell you I had 12 years of speech therapy? Yeah, I did, okay. Uh, see, ADHD, there you go. That was free, that was just an ADHD moment. Uh, so so I, I'm in a situation, and so I, I actually would feel jealous sometimes if someone else got in trouble. It's like, no, that's my role. (laughs) So so my idea of authority, all authority, is I fight authority, and authority ultimately wins. But I fight it back again. It's it's this, authorities don't like me. And when I come to Christ, I have that same view of of, of authority. Just waiting for me to screw up. Come on, it's just a matter of time. We both know it's just a matter of time. And that's my view of God. And the view of God that you uh, embrace, well, that determines the direction of your life. And, And so I rail at that view of God. And I was just saying, you stacked the cards against me. You killed my mom when I was two. You gave me this abusive stepmother. You, you gave me all these hormones that I, that I can't possibly control. You gave me a dad who thinks it's normal to have all this porn around. You know, the cards were stacked against me. You knew I was going to go hell from the start. I hope you're getting your jollies off now that I'm saying I'm, I'm go- that's where I'm going. I mean, I just railed. In fact, at one point, my friend started stepping back a little bit because I think he thought a thunderbolt was going to come down and... <laughs> <laughs> well, it didn't happen. What happened was this. I... Uh, at one point, he after I settled down, he goes, Greg, we must be missing something. And I, I had this King James Version, that's the only version we read, the, the inspired version, and um, I was mad and I threw it under the, the hood of his car, his, his truck, just threw it. I said, if we're missing something, what is it? Because he was saying, other people can live a life, why can't we? And I go, what are we missing? And I threw it to anger. And it's, Truck was parked by this lamp in this parking lot. And so I went over there and I started to read the Bible sarcastically. I was mocking him. And she said, The Bible happened to turn open to Romans chapter 8. And I went over there and I said, uh, So, is this what we're missing, Tom? There's no condemnation, them which are in Christ Jesus. Is that, is that the secret that we're missing? There's no condemnation. I looked at that There's no condemnation, them which are in Christ Jesus. What, what does that mean? And I've read it before, but I've had, it never hit me. And all of a sudden, I began to read on in in this. And and it was like the the light went on. The the veil was removed. Uh, If God be forced, who can be against us? Who can lay any charge to God's elect? It's God who justifies. And I suddenly got a picture of God whose love for me wasn't based on my behavior. Uh, Wasn't conditional like that. In fact, as I look back on this, I think what happened was that that tirade that I unleashed towards God was probably the first honest prayer I ever prayed. That's the first time I ever got real with God. Before that, I was always dancing around the flames of hell. Oh, God, you're altogether wonderful. You're beautiful. Although my picture of God isn't beautiful. I think you're sick, but I'm not going to say that because I don't want to go in the flames. So you just like, oh, blessed, are you're holy, wonderful. And I did have some genuine encounters with God, but it was all mixed up with this other stuff. I got honest with God, and it's like God said, thank you, thank you. Now I can get honest with you. I think honesty with God is the most fundamental precondition for anything. He, God can only be as clear to you as you are clear with him. Not from, from his side, but we don't let him in unless we're honest. And so I got honest with him, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's revelation. And for the first time in my life, I got a picture of God that I liked, a picture of god that wasn't like mother superior or my stepmother or any other authority i've ever had to deal with i got a picture of god that was lovable i i, I actually wanted to live for this god and this didn't all happen like completely overnight it it, 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 un, it unfolded over a long period of time afterwards but this was when the seed was planted where there's a picture of god who actually loves me up front for free who, who doesn't his first instinct isn't to condemn me a god who's on my side a god who's rooting for me and and I would like to live. I want to live for this God. I never had that motivation before. I just wanted to avoid hell. That was my motivation. Now now there's something to draw me forward, not just push me away. And then that changed my view of myself. It's like, I am loved up front for free. That was a new thing. I'm not just a footnote to my behavior, which is really what you get when you have a behavioral God. If there's the right behavior, well, then you're in. Wrong behavior, well, then you're out, which means God is not in love with people. He's in love with behavior. See, where's the little footnote of the behavior, and at some level, we feel that. I never felt loved by God, but now He loves me for free, in the middle of the crap, despite the crap. Um, and 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 that just began to change my view of myself. I'm better than this crap. I, I, this stuff I'm in. Rabbits do this. I'm better than that, huh? I I and I, I'm a king's kid. I got king's DNA running through me. I. I I'm better than this. And then it began to change my view of the sin. I used to see it kind of as a positive thing. I just, I'm not supposed to look at it. But now I begin to see it in all of its ugliness. When you get a true picture of God, you get a true picture of yourself, which means you begin to get a true picture of your crap, and that's what begins to transform you out of the crap. But you got to get the love up front for free. I got that revelation, and I've never sinned since. It's really been quite amazing. You know, it's, a, it's a process. It's always a process. But see, the cross is the power of God. If you can believe... Most people have like a montage picture of God. A little of this, a little of that, you know, all mixed together. Jesus is one aspect, but there's other things. No, I encourage us to purge our mind of everything that is not consistent with what God looks like on the cross. And see, when we begin to realize we're loved with that infinite love, in the midst of all of our crap, that is what begins to transform us. If we gaze on the beauty of his face... And digest that, Well, it begins to transform us. Our priorities change. Our desires change. Where we invest our time, what we're attracted to, we're, we're transformed from the inside out. And that's the only healthy way to change. Any kind of transformation from the external end, from external motivations, you're just trading out crap. It's got to get on the inside and transform you that way. Okay, lock it in. Our picture of God, is, your picture of God has got to be one where he could not possibly be more beautiful. Sometimes people have this worry. Uh, we're so easily afraid of being disappointed that it's like, it's, it sounds too good to be true. Where, where's the fine print? Where's the exception clause? You know, it, it, this seems too good to be true. But see, if the cross is the revelation of God, then it could never be good enough to be true. If it feels too good to be true, if your image of God feels too good to be true, that just means you're going in the right direction. Keep on. He's infinitely better than that, but at least you're heading in the right direction. However beautiful it is, Know that it's inf- he's infinitely more beautiful than that, and see, that's what transforms us. Now, someone might be sitting here and saying, see, normally I would quit now, but Brian said, I want my money's worth. Bring me the, the whole king of So, not Brian, Charlie. No, he was John. Gertrude. <laughs> no, he's, anyway, he says, I want the whole deal. So, here here's I want to address one passage. Someone maybe is thinking, okay, that sounds really good, but, there's always this but, but there are passages in the Bible that depict a very different picture of God, right? And not just in the Old Testament where we might expect it because they didn't have the full revelation of what God was like, but even in the New Testament. And the number one, the number one passage that's always used against this view is Romans 9. I'm sure some of you have wrestled with it before. What I want us to see is that this, the meaning that is usually given to Romans 9, it uh, it actually means the opposite. So let's read Romans 9. You ready for round two? Round two. You ready for round two? Can you handle the truth? All right. Romans 9 says this. God has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. Say, what? I don't see Jesus doing that. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Who are you, human being, to argue with God? I picture this big Oz. you know. Who are you? Well, what is molded? Say to the one who molds it, why have you made me like this? Has not the potter no right over the clay to make out of one lump one object for special use and one for ordinary or menial use? And what if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made, that he made, for destruction? Of course, if he made them, why does he have to be patient? Hmm. Uh, And what if he did this in order to make known to the riches of his glory uh, and make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Is this what Paul is saying? Is Paul saying, what of God to glorify himself has one lump of clay, and out of this one lump, he makes some special objects, objects of mercy. And then he makes other objects for menial use, objects for destruction. And then to make known his wrath, his power, he eternally smashes, destroys the objects of destruction that he made for that purpose, in order to now show his mercy on the objects of mercy. Aren't you glad I didn't do that to you? now worship me. Is that, what, is that what's going on here? Is this what Paul's saying? See, I actually believed that view for two years when I was in seminary, only because I felt I had to, for exegetical reasons. I couldn't explain this passage any other way, and I'm bound to believe whatever I think Scripture teaches, so I believed that. What I could never get was why people liked it. Like, I believed it, but, you know, I hang out with people who believe this way, and they, like, oh, God's altogether glorious, altogether lovely, altogether beautiful. I feel like I'm back in my Pentecostal days saying that without believing it. It's like, where's the glory and beauty in this? Even when I believe it's true, it's like, uh, it's, it seems kind of ugly. And um, I, I especially couldn't get into the, uh, the talk of joy of being one of God's elect. We're one of the objects of, of mercy. Oh, the joy of being chosen, it's not about me, it's about God. I couldn't get in on that shtick. What if my daughter's one of the ones who aren't? Created for the sole purpose of most of these folks believe suffering eternal damnation. I, I just, I, I couldn't enjoy it. So maybe, as I've been told, I was predestined not to believe in predestination, so go figure. But see here, honestly, honestly, parents, if you came downstairs and little Johnny or whoever your son or daughter is, they're playing with some clay, and they are acting the way Paul says God acts, or this interpretation says Paul acts in this passage. What would you do? You come down, little Johnny's playing with clay figurines. He makes some good ones over here, and then he makes some ugly ones over here. And he smashes the ones for being the way that they were. But he even says, why have you made me thus? And he goes, who are you to talk back to me? I can make whatever I want. And smash the smash. And then he turns to them, the good ones and he says, no, aren't you glad I didn't do that to you? Uh, worship me, worship me. You would get Johnny to a shrink really quick. Right? <laughs> that is sick. It is sick. But if God's doing it, we're supposed to all say, oh, it's all together lovely and beautiful. I don't think it works like that. See, look at it. Number one, the fact that this picture conflicts with what we learn about God in the crucified Christ means something's wrong with it. That should be enough. If you see me, you see the Father. Lock that in. This doesn't look like the Father that Jesus shows. Something's wrong with this interpretation, all right? Second thing is this. It's always good when you're interpreting a passage to ask the question, what is this passage about? (laughs) Um, Look at the broader context. This passage of Romans 9 has nothing to do with individual salvation or damnation or how God does that. What this passage is about is Paul is answering a question. Has God failed on his promises to Abraham? So in verse 6, which starts this whole narrative, he says, It is not as though the word of God had failed, for not all Israelites truly belong to Israel, and not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants. So here's the thing. God promised Abraham Back in Genesis 12, 15 and 17, it says, "'You shall be the father of many nations.'" You know, your multitudes, you, know, you can have a lot of descendants, more numerous than the sky. And most Jews of Paul's day, of Jesus' day, they believe that if you were a Jew by nationality and you obeyed the law, then you qualified. You're one of the chosen people because you're a Jew by, by nationality and you obey the law. Now, the thing is, most Jews of Paul's day also rejected Jesus as the Messiah, which in Paul's view meant they weren't now part of the chosen people. So here's the argument that they're putting up with him. Paul, if your gospel is true, then God breaks his promises. Because we don't believe in Jesus, and yet we're Jews by nation and, and by uh, law, and that means God has to accept us as chosen people. You turn God into a, prom- uh, a, a lawbreaker. Now, what, what uh, a promise breaker? What Paul responds is by saying, and he says in a number of places in his writings, No, because the true Israelite wasn't just one who who kept the law and was a Jew by by nationality. Rather, the true descendant of Abraham is one who believes like Abraham believes. He's the father of all who believe. And so you become a descendant of of Abraham the minute you put your faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Because That's going to be his response here. Now, here's where the powder clay analogy comes in, all right? Whenever you are dealing with an analogy that is used in the Old Testament... It's very important to pay attention to how it's used in the Old Testament because more often than not, and almost always with Paul, when they use an analogy that was used in the Old Testament, they presuppose that you understand the meaning of it. Okay, they assume that context. So the only place where the potter clay analogy is fleshed out in the Old Testament is in Jeremiah 18. And I want us to look at it, because it's quite surprising, given this deterministic reading of Romans 9. What happened was Yahweh had said to the Israelites, a judgment is coming on you because you've been covenant breakers. A lot of the Israelites turned to be, became fatalists. They say, it's no use, we're gone, we're done for, there's nothing we can do about it. God has prophesied it, cannot help it happen. So God says, no, don't become fatalists. And he gives this lesson to Jeremiah. So he says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Come, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house and there was making, uh, a potter was making his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel as seemed good to him. I've talked to potters about this and they say that uh, pottery and sculpting is not just a matter of imposing your will on clay. Clay has a mind of its own. And so as you're, as you're making sculpting and making pottery, whatever, you have to work with it. You have to cooperate with it and it, it, it will shape to some degree what you end up making. So here a potter was intending on making one kind of a vessel, but the clay was spoiled. It didn't cooperate. So he decided to make a different kind of a vessel based on the kind of clay he had to work with. He changed his mind. And So then we read this. Then the the word of the Lord came to me and says, Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done? Says the Lord. Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, if the deterministic interpretation of Romans 9 was right, you would think he would say, therefore, I can just crush you if I want. I can make you evil if I want. Whatever. No, he doesn't do that. Listen to this. He says, at one moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and, and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And I can do the same thing for if I promise blessing and it turns evil. So then he says, Now therefore say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, Look, I am the potter, shaping evil, the word there is raw can mean trouble or disturbance, against you, and devising a plan against you. Turn now all of you from your evil way, and amend your ways and your doings. Folks, the potter clay analogy, it's not about God's character or ability to impose his will on us, unilateral control, it's the exact opposite of that. The point of the potter clay analogy it's about the wise flexibility of the potter. So here's Yahweh saying, you guys, yes, I am fa- I'm a potter, you're the clay. I'm fashioning this judgment coming on you. But just because I said it's going to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. <laughs> Don't become fatalist here. Rather, I told you it's going to happen so that it wouldn't happen because I want you to change. And if you will change, I will change. I'll, if you change your mind, I'll change my mind. I'm flexible here. I work with the clay you've uh, given me. Make, become different kind of clay and I'll form something different for you. So, the point is about the wise flexibility of the potter. What Paul is saying here is this If you, Jews, find yourself on the outside, you're no longer on the inside of, of, of God's providential plan, well, it's not because He made you go there. Rather, it's because you've made yourself the kind of clay that that's all He can do with you. You know, He, he doesn't harden you so that you won't believe. It's it's because you don't believe that he hardens you. And so he says that in Romans 11. He goes, they were broken off because of their unbelief, because of their unbelief. They didn't not believe because they were broken off. Rather, it was their unbelief that got them broken off. And so they resist the Messiah. They resist God's mercy. Well, God's, they're going to shape a different destiny for them. And they're looking at these Gentiles. And according to Paul, the Gentiles are being shaped in. Well, that's only because the Gentiles have made themselves into that kind of a clay. God responds. This clay isn't lifeless clay. It's human beings, you see. And God responds. He fashions for us, however, whatever kind of clay we make. The point of Romans 9 is about the wise flexibility of the sovereign God. Whatever He's fashioning, you know, can be wise. That's why you can't say, Why have you made me thus? He knows what He's doing, but He's not imposing it on anybody. What it means, folks, is this the God who created this world, the one who was revealed in Jesus Christ, He's not a tyrant, a control freak, a monster God. Uh, he doesn't just impose his will. He creates this world with agents, free agents, human and angelic, and he gives us this thing called free will because it's the only way you can possibly have a relationship with them. Uh, if a relationship can't be chosen, it's it's a robotic sort of a thing. I mean, and I always wonder why would God want a world where He's controlling everything? Like that would mean that when we praise Him, it has all the significance of me holding up a little Barbie doll, going, "Oh, I praise You. You're so wonderful, You're my Maker." That wouldn't be very satisfying to me. Praise me. Okay, I love you. This is Barbie here, by the way. You're all together. There's no relationship in that. A relationship means there has to be a mutually affecting process going on. You relate. You communicate to each other. You affect God, and God affects you. If you're in a relationship where there's only one way affecting going on, only one way impact, they impact you, but you have no influence back, either change that relationship or get out because that's not a relationship. That's a tyranny, a monopoly. You're being smothered, dehumanizing. God wants a genuine relationship, so He creates us with this free will, and He wants us to choose us, to ch- choose, choose Him, and choose love, and choose His way. But we can choose the other way. In fact, there's a tremendous risk in creating a world like this, isn't there? There's a tremendous risk having kids. It's a lot easier to have puppies. <laughs> uh, you have kids; they can do some nasty stuff, but you, it's worth it. It's worth it. Love is worth it. And see, this is why this world right now is so screwed up, folks. It's it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. A lot of evil, a lot of terrible stuff. But here's what you got to know. See, if you wrap God up with all that terrible stuff, if you think God's involved in that, then it's going to affect your picture of God and therefore compromise your ability to have a beautiful relationship with Him and a, a, have a beautiful life reflecting that. Uh, if you think God is behind the kidnappings, he's orchestrating or, or willing in any sense, the raping, the guy being burned alive by ISIS, the Holocaust, all the terror and evil in this world, Well, then how can that not affect your picture of God? Whenever you see stuff like that, here's where you got, remember, God looks like Jesus Christ on the cross. Whatever's not consistent with God on the cross, with that love, know that that is ultimately traceable back to wills other than God. It comes from some will other than God, but don't pin it on God. God will use it. He can bring good out of it, absolutely, but he's not causing that. Jesus never caused an earthquake or never raped a girl or never, never slaughtered people. So if Jesus didn't do it, don't think God did it. No, it's traceable to some other worlds other than that. And what it means for us, folks, is this. If we could separate the, the beautiful God from the ugly world, don't mix the two up. Keep our eyes fixed on the beautiful God. We are transformed in the image of that beautiful God in a mutually impacting relationship because God's flexible, and it means that our life gets to count. This passage in Jeremiah, it, People have the ability to get God to change his plans. We affect God, we impact God. You see that throughout the whole Bible. God's grieved because we won't get on board. He's frustrated, he's disappointed, surprised, or he's delighted. We, we affect God's emotional state. We matter to God. In fact, to some degree, God, he created things of his own sovereign decision such that he needs us to get on board with what he calls us to do. Things genuinely hang in the balance on what the people of God do. If my people will pray... Call on my name, then they will be healed. Which means if you don't, you're not going to be healed. Things genuinely hang in the balance. He wants to have a bride to reign with him on the throne. Paul calls us his co-workers. Our lives, not only are we infinitely loved by God, but we have significance for God. Whether we step up and do what he calls us to do, well, that affects a lot of things. Uh, Your life gets to eternally count, to be eternally significant by being used by him to impact others in his kingdom. And things genuinely hang in the balance. Whether we pray or not, things genuinely hang in the balance. God, of his own sovereign decisions, set it up such that he impacts us, but we also impact him. And there could be things that he wants done that won't get done because his people don't get on board with it. I can show you a lot of examples of that in the Bible. Our lives get to count. That's both a privilege, uh, uh, a wonderful significance, but it's also a moral responsibility. So I end with this. Number one, Will you keep your eyes fixed on the crucified Christ as your picture of God? Spend time gazing on that. Uh, Let him love you and pour himself into you and know that if your picture of God seems too beautiful, then that means you're going in the right direction because that's what's going to transform you from the inside out. And number two, is God calling you to do something that maybe you've been resisting? You just got to know that God needs you, the church needs you, the world needs you to step into that role. You matter. You are important to God. You're important to the kingdom. Uh, The body only operates well when all the parts are doing its part and we all have a part to play in this. You're loved by God and you matter to God. Let's build the kingdom, amen. God bless you. Stan, where are you? Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Charlie.
0: <laughs> I got a few questions for you. 5.30 tonight. Uh, the Greek word musterion doesn't mean unknowable. We translate it mystery, unknowable. Musterion meant infinitely knowable. That means answers like you gave us today actually provoke three new questions. And we just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into the glory of all this. I resonate so much with what Greg said uh, today. I hear the Apostle Paul saying, and you helping together with God in prayer. Wow, the largesse of God to make us this large that our life and our decisions matter. That's beautiful, beautiful stuff. One more time, tell him how much we thank him for coming. So 5.30 tonight, let's come out and let's drill him with questions, all right? We're gonna do that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this good day, these good people. Thank you for all of our guests here today. We hope we've experienced something that's truly transformational. Oh Lord, help us not to be ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the simple truth that this word has to become flesh. Help us to digest it, help it to become flesh, that the world might be a better place. We pray this. In the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, amen.